You're listening to the Joelle Martin Mastery Podcast, home of the two-hour deep dive interview with gold, platinum, and multi-platinum bands, including Stained, Blue Rodeo, The Arkells, Finger Eleven, Big Wreck, Moist, Bedouin Soundclash, I Mother Earth, Ill Scarlet, Neverending White Lights, Thornley, and many more. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast as well as share, comment, and like. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We are joined by a very special guest. He achieved a level of mastery as the drummer for several iconic bands, including Breaking Benjamin, Black Label Society, Black Star Riders, and his new band, Turning the Tide. So welcome to the podcast, making his triumphant return, Chad Zaliga. Chad, how are you? And is it true that you have a fascination for pumpkin carving? I definitely, definitely, I'm going a little crazy with pumpkins. Yeah. Already? We're September, man. We're not even October. I know. <laughs> it's, um, I don't know what kind of got me. Oh, well, I covered a pumpkin many years ago. It took me like seven hours. And I used a Dremel tool. And I put them outside. And I have a ring outside of my house and it notified that there's something at my door and I watched squirrels eat all our pumpkins, all the hard work. And I said, screw it. So I did some research and found out there's styrofoam pumpkins. And I said, well, I could put the same TLC into this thing, do it for seven hours and keep it for the rest of my life. And there you see some of the projects I've done. Wow. So we have a Jason mask in there. Was there a bird? What are we looking at? Uh, so let me see if I can bring you in. So my wife did that one. This one is hard because they're not lit up. But this is Chucky. I don't know if you can see that. Um, that's Michael Myers. That's Leatherface. That's Jaws, and that's like a werewolf. I'll have to maybe light them up, send pictures to you. Yeah, they look good. I didn't even know that you could have, you said they're styrofoam? Yeah, they're like a foam pumpkin, and it's a a real chore. It it gets really messy, especially when you use a Dremel tool. But... You can also get like an X-Acto knife that you plug in that like heats up and it kind of cuts through the pumpkin a little bit easier, but you really have to take your time because it's so fragile so and thick. So you have to cut little bits and little bits at a time and it just gets all over your clothes. You inhale styrofoam. It's it's a mess, but it's well worth the, the wait, you know. So stupid question. What is a Dremel tool? Is this like a little saw or something? So a a Dremel tool is like, it kind of looks like a handle of like a electric screwdriver and it has all different attachments and you can get them that spin and kind of like a drill and you chisel through parts of the pumpkin that way, which is a lot easier than old school pumpkin cutters. It's just, that's too thick. So yeah. That's what we use. So is it safe to assume that Halloween's your favorite holiday or 
It isn't my favorite holiday. Um, I was never really allowed to celebrate it because it's the devil's holiday. So I guess when I got older and I didn't have mom and dad not letting me celebrate, I went <laughs> full tilt celebrating on it. Okay. All right. And uh, do you, you know, the those squirrels that ruined your seven hours of hard work, did, did that stop you? you? You never do carve out regular pumpkins anymore? Or do you still do that, but maybe don't put as much effort in and know that they're probably yeah, going to get destroyed. I mean, nothing beats cutting it open, smelling it, just put, pulling out the seeds, you know, baking them. But um, yeah, I like the styrofoam pumpkins. It's more challenging and I like a challenge here and there, you know. I hear you. So uh, we are going to cover your five favorite albums on this episode. So uh, we had you on the podcast almost exactly a year ago. So back on episode number 75, this was in September of 2022. Uh, we mm -hmm. did a full two hour deep dive interview. We covered your life, your career, your discography. So for the fans that are tuning in that uh, want to hear all about that, go back to episode 75 because we're going to do something different. So this is a part of the My Five Favorite Albums series. Uh, you're going to mm -hmm. share your five favorite albums. We're going to take some time time to really dive into those. And I wanted to break a little bit of news here. I thought you would enjoy hearing this. So your episode came out a year ago and right off the bat, it it was a big success, a ton of downloads. People were loving it. So it was top, top three most downloaded wow. episodes of all time from the moment it came out. But over the years, uh, over the year that it's been out, it's just been steady and steady and steady. And in the last two weeks, it became the most downloaded episode in the podcast three and a half year history. So 114 wow. interviews and yours is number one. I thought you would like to hear that first. I feel very honored and blessed that everyone enjoyed watching it and keeps on watching it. And I'm so happy for you, man. I mean, you had a vision and you went after it. And look where you're at, you know, you're at a hundred and some episodes. And I think everyone really digs everything, the work, the detail you put into it and investigating all the stuff about us. So we, I feel very humble and privileged that you would take the time out of your schedule to interview me. Well, thank you for the kind words. And in your honor on the wall of fame, I added phobia. Uh, so these are my my favorite albums from guests I've had on the podcast. And I went back and looked at our original interview and that album was not up. So I I, I was like, I got to get that up now that he's been a guest. And it's right there nice. beside uh, your good friend, John Wysocki of Stained. Yeah. Um, uh, Break the Cycle, one of my all-time favorite albums along with Phobia. So uh, let's let's talk about what you've been up to for the last year. Uh, a big thing is you joined a new band called Turning the Tide. So can you share a little bit about that band? Uh, how did you meet the other members? How did the opportunity present itself? It was kind of crazy because <clears throat> what happened when the pandemic happened, obviously we were all shut down. And I was two years down and I was doing session work in my studio, still teaching on Skype and Zoom and all that. And um, my one of my drum students is a booking agent in our area. And I said, hey, man, if you know any bands that are looking for drummers, I need to take up some work now. Um, and he actually goes, yeah, I know a band that they're getting rid of their drummer. And I said, well, that'd be perfect. Um, 
let me get, you know, some of their digits and I'll give them a call. So long story short, I gave him a call. He came to my house with his girlfriend, who's the other lead singer. Um, and before you know it, they came to my house. We gelled right away. And now we're, I think we're a year and four months into this band as this new lineup. Uh, myself, Garrett, Jules, and John, uh, Corsali, the lead singer slash guitar player. And it's a top 40 band. Um, we also been writing originals, so hopefully we'll have something sh- hopefully soon. But we've been really kicking some butt uh, for over a year. I mean, we're playing in the summer three, four times, sometimes a week. And then um, now we're doing two shows usually in the winter. And then we do we have a couple residencies, three residencies at Sloppy Joe's in Key West for seven days straight. We do a thing called Fantasy Fest in the middle of October, and then we play in December, around Christmas time, and then in March. So we're always playing. And I, technically, I've always been a cover band drummer. Every band I played in, I filled in for the next, you know, position, or the drummer that might have passed away, or got fired, or this or that. So I've always been playing, technically, in a glorified cover band. And it's always nice to come back to where I started in like top 40 and stuff. It's challenging because you're playing stuff that's out of your, not out of your wheelhouse, but it's, you're going from hip hop to country to rock to funk. So it really keeps you on your toes. And I kind of really enjoy that kind of thing where it kind of takes you out of your comfort zone. And when you say that you guys are working on original music, uh, it, if you're doing all these covers, it's like the sound of the band will change depending on what song and what genre. But when it comes to you guys writing, what mm-hmm. what can fans expect if if something gets released? Man, that's a good question, because that's one thing I was afraid of, like, oh, yeah, we can cover anyone's music. But what's our sound and how is this going to work when we have two lead singers? that are amazing, phenomenal. So John and Jules take spots where John might sing the first verse, Jules might sing the second chorus, then she'll do the harmony for the chorus or vice versa. So that was one of my hard, like, is this going to be a deal breaker? Is John going to have a better voice than Jules? And Jules is just going to be some backups there? No, not at all. They're equally good. And they equally sound different, but sound great together. So it can be like Paramore meets Nickelback. The hooks are really strong. Jules is just, to me, going to be an iconic woman that women want to be like. Like, a, you know, a Haley from Paramore. Um, she just has that really, like, cool yeah. mystique fact about her. And then John, good-looking kid, plays the guitar amazing and sings phenomenal. So... It's the best of both worlds, having a guy and a girl. I've never had that in a band where it's two singers. It's usually I've been in a band with a girl or I've been in a band with a guy. Yeah, Haley from Paramore might just have my favorite voice, period. Like, just such Amazing. an incredible singer. And Amazing. Um, so is you guys are currently writing. Has there been any recording done? Is there any vision of a goal that we want to release a single or an EP or an album? Yeah, that is the goal. So we have 
five songs completely done, mixed and mastered. Oh, wow. We haven't put anything out yet. I think we're going to, you know, test the waters and play them while we're doing our cover band thing and slide them in, but don't tell anybody. And hopefully someone on break will go, what was that song you guys played before that? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, that's one of ours. Are you kidding me? That's the kind of, because if you're doing all originals or all covers, it's one or the other, right? It's like, you got to make a living. This is my living. So you got to do top 40. But if you become this original project, you can kind of slide it in, but still make money for a living and kind of, kind of kill two birds with one stone. So that's kind of the goal is like do the top 40 thing slowly, but surely kind of build and throw some originals, see how the crowd reacts to it. If that starts taking off, then we kind of know where to go. Um, So that's kind of the plan of attack right now. Obviously in November, we're going to shoot two videos for two of the songs. But, I mean, it's still in the baby process. Even though we have, like, five songs, we still have, like, five more to write. And we'll take it from there. I was looking at your concert dates for September. So you guys had a bunch of shows this month. And when I looked at pictures, you know, someone thinks of a cover band. They think, oh, this little pub with 100 people. I'm looking at the pictures and I'm seeing like festivals with thousands of people. So um, what has the reception been like to these these shows that you've been playing? Man, we've been so blessed for only being together for a year. We're playing venues that bands have been together for 15. And You know, the most important thing to me is camaraderie. And the most important thing is being humble and cordial and respectful when you're off stage. And that's one thing that a lot of bands don't possess. And I wanted this band to have. You're amazing on stage, but off stage, you're as cool as you are on stage. And that goes a long way with bartenders, security, owners, managers, the list goes on and on, where you have that rapport, like people are like, they're the nicest guys, nicest women, a nice woman. And with that, it kind of spreads like wildfire. And then you keep playing that facility. And the more you play it, you start building a fan base. And Nine times out of 10, like when we walk off, people think we've been together for 10 or 15 years. And when I tell them, I'm like, we've only been together for a year or six months. They're like, there's no way you have that tightness and that sound in a, in a year. But we work really hard. We, we practiced for two weeks straight, maybe eight hours a day, and then just went out into the fire and just started playing. And do you have any favorite cover songs to play with that band? So let's say picture you're back at that festival performing. When you look down mm-hmm. at your your set list, are there any songs that you see that title and you go, oh, shit, I can't wait to play that song? It's funny you say that because every venue, if we've never played, for the first time in my life, I'm excited to play everything because I know how well we play it. And I go, I can't wait to play this for people right after this song. I can't wait. I mean, we do a medley 
I wouldn't say it's emo medley, but we do um, um, Panic at the Disco. Um, oh, I write sins into um, Misery Business into Fallout Boy, Sugar, We're Going Down, or Sugar. Um, and that's awesome. I mean, everyone's that's even older is living their youth. So it's kind of like cool to watch these kids that are younger, but also watching people my age and going, oh, man, I remember this song. And our goal is to play it like the artist, at least similar, to give them an experience where we're a cheaper ticket to go maybe not see Fallout Boy, but we're going to try our damnedest to play it like the Fallout Boy vibe. If you took those three songs in that medley and you added uh, a dashboard confessional song and you added a My Chemical Romance song, then it's officially the emo medley. We want to do that My Chemical Romance, that big uh, massive Hel- anthem. Helena or yes. uh, okay, yeah, I think I think it's that one. Or I don't care where I, I don't I, I can't remember. They have, the a, name. they have a ton of hits, so yeah. Um, but then. You know, I was never really in the country. Everyone's like, you need to go to Nashville. You make a killing there. You would be perfect for that. I was never a country guy. And then we do stuff like um, Country Girl, which is Luke Bryant. We do a whole medley of like Gretchen Wilson, um, then Carrie Underwood, and then Shania Twain. And I love it. And I don't have to overplay because they're so good. Nothing to say like, oh, I needed to play because my other bands, but I love just sitting in the pocket and letting them shine because they're such great performers. And what's great about the band, me being biased that I'm in it, everyone is doing something different. So when you watch us, there's always some entertainment aspect. Oh, watch the singer. She's moving her head. Oh, watch the drummer or bass player. It's not just one focal point. Everyone is equally talented in this band. So it's really cool. And what would you say is the most challenging cover song that you do on drums? So it doesn't have to necessarily be from the Turning the Tide set list, but just I'm sure you've learned, I don't know, Tool songs over the years or Metallica. Mm -hmm. Is there any one song that stands out that you like really had to work at it and it took you a long time or maybe maybe it was, I don't know. Maybe it didn't take Um, you a long time, but it's still challenging. Breaking Ben, right when I got the gig, uh, when we used to do sound checks, whether Ben off the cuff would say, let's learn another song, even though we didn't rehearse it. Because I only had like, I think, three days to rehearse with the band ever and then go on a tour. Um, So it was a lot of stress. Um, But I think, if I remember correctly, there was one night I'm still learning the Breaking Ben songs, mind you. Still trying to get them tighter. How can I make them better for the fans? And Ben goes, let's do Anima by Tool. And I went, huh? Tonight? It's like eight minutes long. Yeah, and Danny Carey is a phenomenal drummer. And I wouldn't say his parts are super hard, but there's some time into them. So you got to put some man hours. And one day ain't just going to sit in and just go, let's jam tool. Um, so we pulled off Anima. And I sat there like trying to study it. I mean, I don't think I played it exactly, but pretty close to make it sound like tool. And it went off great. You know, prayed a lot, but 
<clears throat> I think that was one of the most challenging kind of things. Um, and then like doing a drum solo, I got sick of. I'm like, I'm not a big drum solo kind of guy. I can do them. I just feel like it rips off the fans. They come to see Break and Ben, not Chad Saliga do a drum solo. But I used to do it to save Ben's voice if it felt hoarse. I said, I'll do a drum solo. And then it became a thing where I'm like playing seven to 10 minute drum solos. I'm like, I should get money for hooking people up at a concert going, this is boring. You want to get a hot dog? What's your name? And then they fall in love and get married because my drum solo is boring. You know, so I was like, why can't we do like part of a drum solo and maybe a medley of songs while Ben rests his voice? So we scripted this whole kind of thing of a routine of a drum solo. Or no, we started with the medley, like for whom the bell tolls into uh, Mouth for War by Pantera into Rage Against the Machine, Bulls on Parade, into Blind, blah, blah, blah. And then go back to for whom the bell tolls do a tiny bit of a drum solo and then end it on 40 and uh, 46 and two, the ending. That's a lot to remember. So you kind of get pressured into, well, what's the next part? What's the next part? Uh, I can't even remember where I'm in a happy birthday, but right. So I think something like that, where it's a long part that is scripted. And if you mess up a part, it throws you off on the rest of the part. That kind of thing. One of my last guests had in his five favorite albums, he had Pantera, Vulgar Display of Power. So I really got into the Pantera stuff. And then I just went to see Metallica, the two nights in Montreal. Yeah. And Pantera opened one night and Five Finger Death mm -hmm. Punch opened the other. Uh, so I just really got into Pantera. So I I, I know how, how badass that is now. I, oh, I was yeah. a little late to the game because... You know, it was, uh, you know, 91, 92, 94, around there. And I was six, seven, eight years old. So I was a little young back then, but I'm glad. You were probably in the big wreck at that time. Maybe. Yeah, the Canadian bands, yeah. Or Our Lady Peace, you know. Um, but again, to me, every drum part has its own technicality. That's why I try not to make fun of drummers like I was young and dumb and stupid because someone has something to offer to the table, whether it's simple or complex. Sometimes simple simplicity can be actually harder because now you're playing simple. It could sound boring to you. That's the maturity. Then just playing a bunch of notes, you know? So one one more thing before we dive into your five favorite albums, I thought you'd enjoy uh, this. Uh, I recently took my dad for his birthday to see Peter Gabriel, and he had uh, Manu Kache on drums, who I believe is one of your big influences. Uh, yeah. What a monster! Uh, how, how did you how did you get into him? What makes him so great? So it's funny. So when I was a little kid, um, maybe I was. 12 or 13, I can't remember the age exactly. I wanted a splash symbol, little symbols that Zildjian made. And my mom bought me one for Christmas, and I was so excited. But this is how old this is going back. It came with a VHS tape, right? And it was a drummer showing off these symbols. 
selling it like Billy Mays and four easy installments, throw the coasters in for the kids. So when you bought that splash, it came with this video to show off the sound. And here comes this guy named Manu Kashe. I had no clue who this guy was because I was a big Neil Peart fan. God rest in peace at that time. And then he did the same song three different ways. One with no splashes, one with splashes, one with splashes and another way of approaching the song. And I immediately gravitated towards the screen and was like, I need way more of those splashes. And I was already into Stuart Copeland, so I already was familiar with that sound. That's kind of what got me into buying the splash. And then Manu just took it to another level. And then when you listen to In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel, the way he touches those drums was uncanny. I was just like, who is this guy? I need to go down a rabbit hole and figure out how he plays this. Then I started writing my own stuff like Diary of Jane and became a signature part of my drumming. So it's been passed from Stuart to Manu to me to Dave Aberziz to you list goes on. And these little symbols are a symbol like six inches and eight inches and 10 inches and 12 inches, all different sizes, plethora of them. But it's a lost art. A lot of drummers don't use those anymore. Because it's so soft in a mix, you might not hear it. But if you put it in the right spot, it can bring the house down. So Manu was a big, big part of my drumming. So let's dive into your five favorite albums. Let's start let's... by by listing off all five so people know what we're going to talk about. Then we'll dive into each individually. Do you, do you want to name the five albums? If you can remember them, I have them in front of me in case you forget one. Yeah, so obviously I mentioned Stuart Copeland, a big, big, big part of my drumming. Uh, synchronicity, too. Um, synchronicity, the song, wrapped around your finger, every breath you take, you know, um, all these, even the greatest hits of them is amazing, but that record really changed my drumming. When I heard a song called Murder by Numbers, I was just amazed by his drumming. The way he flipped the beat, made it more reggae. We call it one drop, but actually he was like Middle Eastern beats and stuff like that. And punk rock. He was just a drummer's drummer. And um, that was the first record, uh, Living Colors Greatest Hits, which is to me, a forgotten band, but still iconic where you can still hear call a personality on the radio and it still holds weight today. And a drummer named Will Calhoun on that record. Um, but the greatest hits, because there's so many great songs, I had to put the greatest hits. I couldn't put Vivid or Type or anything like that or Stain. I had to pick the greatest hits. Um, third one is Tony Williams, who is my favorite drummer of all time, um, who started with Miles Davis, then branched off and became a solo artist, a composer. And um, the live in Tokyo is my favorite record because nothing takes away from the studio stuff, but something about it live, taking chances. Don't have these technology at your 
your at your footsteps of Pro Tools where it corrects it. You mess up, it's there. And those imperfections become masterpieces in my mind where you can almost feel his presence. You could feel the sweat dripping down. You could feel the power on that record. Um, what was another one? Um, you have Earth, Wind, and Fire? Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yeah. Uh, Maurice White. Like That, to me, is the pinnacle of R&B. Timeless. And I mean, t- babies were made on those songs. You know what I'm saying? Babies are still being made with those songs. Babies are still being made with those songs. Iconic band. Iconic band and still touring to this day. Um, What was We have Huey uh, Huey Lewis. Huey Lewis in the news. People might bust my chops on this, but what a great pop band. And a very iconic band with harmonies. And when you listen to those songs, it just puts a smile on your face just the essence the touch of simplicity and massive bubblegum hooks and uh where are we at is that it so, uh, those are all five so i'm going to yeah. list them off real quick so living color super hits that's their greatest hits album the police yep. synchronicity huey lewis and the news greatest hits tony williams tokyo live and then earth wind and fire greatest hits i have to say that i'm surprised by your choices uh not because not because they're not great albums they're all great albums but you i mean you've played in these these heavy bands breaking benjamin and zach wilde's black label society that's how people see you as a drummer this this powerful captivating drummer so i'm Uh thinking okay here comes the tool albums here comes the metallic albums here comes the pantera albums and then you're hitting me with these jazz albums and and you know pop rock and and reggae and and these uh funk and r&b so at first i was surprised but then when i listened to it there's all these world-class drummers running through your choices that i can hear influence you even though your your style is heavier at least the stuff that's recorded that people are familiar with Uh uh-huh yeah thank you so much so every drummer on those choices had a sound if they played on another record, you know it's them. <clears throat> Excuse me, I have <clears throat> allergies really bad. Um, but all those drummers in a soup, and there's way more records and more drummers. Um, my other favorite is Greg Bizonette, who's, in my mind, one of the best. Play with David Lee Roth and all that. But um, those drummers... If I was on a desert island, I would, my palate would be fulfilled. I'd be full. I'd be not hungry anymore. I cover pop. I cover jazz. I cover somewhat hard rock metal and a little bit of technicality with pop hooks with the police. I would never get sick of those records because it's a genres of everything I covered. I'm not a rock metal guy, never have been. But with the diversity that I've learned and and appreciated, I brought that to rock. I brought that to metal. I brought that to hard rock. 
And then these drummers did the same thing. Tony Williams just didn't play bebop. He also played fusion, harder stuff. Will Calhoun is in a metal band, hard rock band, but is a jazz guy. So all these drummers were versatile in their own right, too. And that's what got me versatility. And my mentality is if it's good, it's good. And if it sucks, it sucks. Right? So all the listeners that are listening in and watching this, I challenge you to open up your horizons and not just pinpoint these are your favorite bands, but kind of branch off into orchestra, orchestral, or orchestral stuff like Bach and Beethoven and Mozart and listen to the compositions that might not be the drumming in there, but the beauty of melody. Then go into country and find stuff that is taking you out of your comfort zone and might open your eyes to writing different melodies. So to me, I like everything, if it's good, in my opinion. Do you think that if those five albums were never released or those five artists never existed, that you would be a different drummer today? Or maybe you never even would have become a drummer? I don't know. That is a good question. I really would say no. I wouldn't be the drummer I am today. Because all these drummers took chances, too. Like, Tony Williams was a hardcore bebop drummer with Miles Davis. I, I believe the the rumor on the street was when he was 17 or 18, told Miles Davis to go home and practice. Miles Davis, we're talking about. A guy that broke ground for us to do what we do. But then he went off and went into fusion world. And it was then like, oh, you can't do that. You're a jazz drummer. And he was like, why can't I? Music's music. Why can't I approach my jazz and bring it to rock? Hence why it's called fusion. But like, there would be no bands like Periphery, Animals as Leaders, Devin Townsend, if it wasn't for our forefathers taking those OG movement and like changing music and going, why can't you put this there? Why can't you do? So they really set the groundwork for us, laid the groundwork. I love animals as leaders. They're so good, man. Holy crap. Those are talented musicians. Uh, Let's let's dive into each of those five albums uh, one at a time now. So let's start with Living Color. So Super Hits comes out in 1998. Mm -hmm. Do you remember? So obviously, if it's the greatest hits, it's the amalgamation of their career. Um, And and this actually covers their first three albums. So there's 10 songs taking from the band's first three albums. So Vivid, Time's Up, and Stain. And later on, like they've been releasing studio albums later on in their career, but this Greatest Hits came out before those later albums. Mm -hmm. Do Do you remember how you discovered the group itself, Living Color? Uh, I was really young again, and this will outdate me. I had a Sony yellow Walkman. Yes, Walkman, not streaming, cassettes. Not a Discman, a Walkman with a cassette. A cassette. Like neon yellow, banana yellow. And that was like the cream of the crop at that time for music players. And I wanted a bunch of music for my birthday, I believe. And I found on MTV this band, Living Color. And this was late 
early nineties, I think, is when um Vivid came out and Corey Glover, phenomenal there, was wearing like this body glove outfit with dreads, skin tight. Um and the band was just no pun intended, vivid. Really bright colors, um, neon colors, and just that kind of shock value. Now, mind you, 80s Poison and Guns N' Roses was out at that time. I think they were on their way almost out, but they were still around. And then here comes Living Color, and the musician quality was phenomenal. You, ver- ver- you know, um, um, I want to say Verdine White, but that's the bass player. Something Vernon. Um, yeah. Um, Is it Mike Vernon or something? No. <laughs> I'm so brain dead right now. I can't believe I forget his name. That's all good. I'll find his you name could, while you, you keep... You could Google it, yeah. yeah. Forgive me, because I should know that. Um, but they had another bass player, Doug Wimbush, too, that started playing later on. But, like... Vernon Reed. Vernon Reed. I still keep saying Vernon White. Um, yeah. His guitar playing was nothing like you would ever hear. Just all this chaos, but still beautiful disaster. You know? And then Will Calhoun, the way his grooves were and the way he played a ride cymbal wasn't just playing it just to play it. He was using the bell all the time to mark... Uh, the foundation. And when I heard that, obviously I was a drummer's drummer. So any drummer that was great, I liked the record. Hence why I fell in love with Rush. But when I heard Call the Personality, it was just attitude. And I was like, Mom, I want that record. And then I got into type. um, And I fell in love with the band and I just followed them on from there. So I actually wasn't super familiar with with Living Color. I I Mm -hmm. listened to this Greatest Hits album and, you know, you're hearing something for the first time. So your mind is trying to put it in these categories of, oh, it reminds me of this or it's this type of genre. And what came to me right away was, number one, the level of musicianship was incredible across all instruments. So I'm hearing the bass, I'm thinking, wow, that bass is incredible. And then the the drums, I'm like, oh shit, the drums are so good. And then there's these crazy, you were talking about the guitar, you've never heard anything like it. I'm hearing like Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine style before guitar Tom Morello. at least four years before uh, Rage's first album in 1992. So this predates, and I wonder if it was an influence on uh, Tom Morello. It, I, you know, that's a good question. That's a rabbit hole to dig into. But they were really influenced from a old punk, uh, punkish rock metal band called Bad Brains. Hmm. So you go down that wormhole and you can kind of hear, you know, Living Colors identity a little bit into it. But um, or Bad Brains and the Living Colors music. Um they were heavily influenced. So they, they can go from R&B to really heavy stuff to punk rock to hardcore. They're, I mean, the world was their oyster. They could play anything and just make it sound awesome. And they had the best powerhouse singer, Corey Glover. You know, to, to this day, sounds like the records. I actually, 
here's a little nugget. I auditioned for Corey Glover. And for I had solo, an opportunity to do, yeah, to do a solo tour. He had some other solo records called Hymns, which was another favorite record of mine. And um, he was putting a band together. He had a band, and then I don't know what happened. And my name got thrown in the mix by a guy named Smitty, who was their manager at the time, good friend of mine. And my name got brought up. I went, started playing with them, and I got to play Call the Personality. And it my was my, like cheek to cheek smile, you know. And um, I can't remember what happened, but it didn't happen the tour. But I at least got to sit in one moment and hear, look in my eyes. I was like, this is the song that brought me to this band. And here I am, full circle, playing with the man right there. It was in, like surreal. So you're mentioning that Bad Brains was an influence on <clears throat> living color. And again, as I'm listening and I'm trying to figure out what bands they sound like or who sounds like mm -hmm. them, the first song that came to mind was a Faith No More song, Epic, was the first song that it came to me and I said, oh, that actually sonically sounds kind of like the living color sound. So I don't know all of faith no more's music, but at least that one sound had their sound of drums with like a lot of reverb, they did. their sound of bass. And then as I continue to listen, I could then hear the, the chili peppers that come later that might've been mm -hmm. influenced by living color. That's where my yeah. brain went while listening. Yeah. I mean, you do have a good ear because I think don't quote me. I, th I think Epic and and all that kind of stuff came around living color, I think. Um, and Chili Peppers was pretty dominant in the scene because Give It Away was huge at that time. So I think it was all around that, that same time. I remember seeing living color on Arsenio Hall. That's how long ago <laughs> that was. And I think they did call the personality. And all that time in that genre, there was a lot of funky stuff, too. You know, I think Sublime was around in that, maybe a little later. But, like, there was some funk stuff coming out. 311 was another big influence of mine. But, like, 311, Living Color, all those kind of things. Still funky, but in a different funk. Yeah, and also... Uh like you mentioned, they cross all the different genres. I'm I'm going, okay, well, they're, they're kind of hip hop. And then I'm like, no, they're kind of jazz. Then it's like heavy metal. And uh, it was very hard to pigeonhole, which is the point that they have their own sound that, that um, they're not afraid to bring in all genres to create something unique. And if I think about it, they were the first kind of rage band because they had a lot of politics stuff in their music content, lyrically. Like, call the personality. Neon lights, Nobel Prize, when a leader speaks, that leader dies. Uh, and then you hear, it's not what you can do for your country. You know, it's got that iconic message. Then um, there's other songs about racism and, and stuff like that, cops and so they were really the forefront of breaking that barrier of 
politics with government and we're not going to do what you tell us to do kind of thing. Musically, too. Because you got to mind you, it's all black band. That was not that big back in the day. So they broke that barrier for other bands. And this is like 86, 88. Like this is way back. Yeah. So they were like the first like hard rock band to be all black. And that was a great thing because not many bands that were black played rock and roll. It was a stereotypical thing. You just do hip hop or you do R&B. And when you saw that, you're like, yes, that's awesome. Now that stereotypical, no pun intended with type, but stereotype is labeled now. So they broke a lot of ground, dude, that they need recognition for. Same with King's X is another band. Doug, Doug Pennick. Bass player was a black guy playing rock and roll. So we all can play. White guys can go to hip hop. White guys can play funk. So I think that was great in that time for music. I I found some cool things that have to do with Mick Jagger and his involvement with the band. I don't know if you've you've no, heard this. There's that. some cool things. So uh, all the way back in 1986, li- Living Color, there was no label interest. Nothing was happening. And then Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones saw them at CBGB's and he went on to endorse them. And then really? there was renewed interest in record labels. Uh, and then they they signed with Epic. And then three years later, in 1989, Rolling Stones took them out on tour. So Rolling Stones, Guns N' Roses, and Living Color. This is I did not know that. This is, uh, yeah. So it was Cult of Personality that in 1988 came out and the video got picked up on MTV. So 88, they start making a buzz. And in 89, the Rolling Stones, again, Mick Jagger takes him out on, it would probably be the biggest tour in the world at that point. So yeah, that's I mean, the Guns Mick Jagger. Roses was massive too, probably, right? That was right. probably Appetite for Destruction or Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. Uh, it was Appetite for Destruction at that point. Yeah. So yeah. they're so, they're writing the biggest album in the world. And one more thing that goes further with Mick Jagger is uh, on their song, uh, Elvis is dead. Mick That's, Jagger. I was about is, to just say Mick that. Jagger is the voice at the wake uh, within that song. So showing Mick Jagger shows up three times to help them throughout their career. Which and that's one of my favorite songs too. That in type on that record, um, Elvis dead is phenomenal. And it it showed that uh, it's Little I, Richard no, I think that's rapping. Little on Richard. That. Little Richard. Was a, was a good performer. I stay in electrify when he got it. Yeah, I love that band. Dude. You you were talking about uh, on the song uh, "Cult of Personality" that there's kind of the iconic speeches. So they have several speeches on there. Several and and it starts with the Malcolm X one where he says, yeah. and during the few moments that we have left, we want to talk right down to earth in a language that everyone here can easily understand. And I love that because. It sounds like it's actually music is the language everyone can understand. That's how I take it when it's used with that song. Yeah, it's just so masterfully 
put together. Uh, I don't know if you're into wrestling, but CM Punk has been using Cult of Personality yeah. as his entrance song yeah. since 2001. And in in 2013, Living Color played live at WrestleMania 29. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. So instead of him coming out and the songs playing like from a CD, he comes out and the band's playing and it's for his match at WrestleMania against The Undertaker. So I thought that was actually kind of cool. That is cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, so I guess just a few a few cool accolades for the band. So uh, they won two Grammy Awards in 1990 and 1991. Mm-hmm. So best hard rock performance. And this has to do with cult personality and, and the album. Um, VH1 has them on their list of has that song on the list of 100 greatest hard rock songs of all time. And the solo in that song is uh, on the 100 greatest solos of all time in guitar world. So just some cool. It is things. pretty iconic. It's not a song. <clears throat> that solo is not a solo that you can just play whatever you want. There are parts that you got to play note for note, like "Sweet Child of Mine." And uh, I-, I grew up playing Guitar Hero, and that song is in Guitar Hero Three. If if ever you played that, is song. it really? Yeah, like the solo and everything. Yeah, except I don't think they had the rights to use the masters, so the song was re-recorded. So it maybe it's not note for note. Who knows? Yeah, I but remember that playing band, that song, but that band right now isn't as big as they were. And I get it; they're older, they write different stuff, but they really opened up the door for a lot of different things. And I just wanted to put that on my list to show my appreciation, one, for Will Calhoun, what he's done for me and what that band has done for many people, opening a future for their career. So they they went on hiatus until 2000. And since then, they put out three new albums. Have you checked out those albums at all? Do you, do you know? If yeah, I mean, I'm. I'm trying to get back into stuff that I I grew up on, but obviously it's changed. The budgets aren't there. The sonic qualities aren't there. Um, It's really hard, dude. Like when you write, like call a personality or type or love rears its ugly head or um, yeah, like those kind of songs, it's hard to top those. And you can get in a in a routine of bam, 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 single, single, massive single, and then just fall off the face of the earth and go, I need some time to like do some solo stuff, get some stuff out of my system, and I'll come and I'll meet you in a couple of years. And I think that's what they did. They uh, Vernon did, I think, a solo thing with like clarinets and stuff, like some real avant-garde kind of thing. Corey did a solo R&B rock pop thing. Um, Doug Wimbush did a bunch of like probably played on people's stuff. Will Calhoun got into really like the African culture of like going to Africa and really sitting down with drummers and really digesting his culture and really putting out like some great jazz stuff, you know. So I think, as you would say, soy your royal oats as coming to America, that's what they did. They branched off and did their stuff and then came back and said, hey, we are living color. 
I missed this. Let's try this one more time. So as we wrap up talking about Living Color and dive into the uh, the next favorite album, uh, just a few more things. So yeah, man, it looks like they're still doing the damn thing because uh, they've been in the studio now uh, working on a new album. Uh, this year, they went on a US tour with Extreme, so another big band from mm-hmm. quite a few years ago. And uh, last but not least, Living Color is number 70 on VH1's 100 Greatest Artists of Hard Rock. So that's uh, that, that's Very what I got. Cool. So yeah, it sounds like there'll be new music again uh, in the near future, and it looks like they're still out touring. If if yeah, and they're always on that. Catch them like those cruise ship things. They're always on those. Yeah, and and what's great about that band? They're not arrogant to say I'm not going to play on stage with this band. They'll go up and sit in with any band and just jam songs. They're that kind of group, you know, they're like, you'll see Corey Glover singing a cover song with some local band. That's what I appreciate about that band. They never forget where they came from. So let's dive into your next album. So we have The Police, their album Synchronicity from 1983. I have so much to say about this album. Do you remember the first time that you heard this album? Yeah, I mean, I got into it late, like a lot of other things or other people do. Uh, wrapped around your finger. And it was just the mood that song gave me, like darkness, but also light on the other side of the tunnel or cave, whatever you want to say. And the musicality of simplicity, space, but using splashes and bells and stuff in the verse. It's like, do, 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 do. And it's like, what did he have? Just Tourette's on the snare drum? It just came out of nowhere. And just like the spacing and understanding where to save your tricks for treats and never do it again. Like, oh, that was a cool lick. So I'm going to do it. He never do it again. He would never do it again. So, um, yeah, it's just that song is to me so iconic of just understanding space and setting a mood with candles in the video. I saw it on VH1 of all places. So the album had five singles, Every Breath You Take, Synchronicity 1, Wrapped Around Your Finger, like you just mentioned, King of Pain and Synchronicity 2. And what's wild is this album sells 8 million copies just in the US. It sells 20 million albums globally, like one of the biggest albums of all time. At that point, they're essentially the biggest band in the world and then, mm-hmm. and then that's it. That's this is the the fifth and final album uh, from the Police, and then uh, you know Stingo solo. It's just so crazy that they get to the very pinnacle and then uh, call it. Yeah, quits. Bah, we don't want to do it anymore. We got to the point of being the biggest band. But there's a saying: "Quit while you're ahead." That's true. And there's tension. You know, they're only a three piece. I couldn't imagine what they'd be like if they were a five piece. They would have probably killed each other even more. But sometimes that tension creates beauty of writing music. And that band wasn't just boom, boom, caca, boom, boom, caca. They were like technicality there to be one of the biggest bands, like an incubus. They have talent, they have technicality, musicality. And great hooks, great songwriting, great lyrical content. 
that was the police, which I know Incubus was definitely influenced by. To show you or to, to educate our listeners on just how big this album was. So at the time where this was released, it had been Michael Jackson's thriller that had just dominated. It had been number one forever, just dominating the forever. charts. And then mm-hmm. this album comes out and spends 17 non-consecutive weeks at number one. And it's the album to interrupt Michael Jackson's thriller grip uh, on the charts. So it's so crazy. Uh, you know, it, it's that's the, the thriller album is the biggest album of all time. So for this to be the one that comes in and basically snatches the title from it at number one for 17 weeks is wild. It wasn't like true pop, not to interrupt you, but it wasn't like true, like, simple drum machine pop formula. There was some technicality in those guitar parts Andy Summers wrote and his bass parts and his drums. There's different time signatures on there. Different time signatures. lyrics about stalkers and murder. It's like Yeah, every breath you take sounds beautiful, but it's about stalking. You know, it's like, what? Ton and cheek kind of thing. Yeah. So what's crazy is I mentioned it. It was at number one for 17 weeks in the U.S. In Canada, it went. It was a number one for 24 consecutive weeks. And to this day, that is still the record all time in Canada. So since 1983 in Canada, no album outside of this, no album has spent more than 24 consecutive. That's like half a year at number one. And every week there's 10 or 15 big major label albums that get released. So for no, you know, a Taylor Swift comes around this week and an Ed Sheeran next week and and an Eminem the week after that for 24 weeks, there's no album that could outsell it in Canada. It's wild. That's insane. And they're not even from the States. Yeah. Not from, from the U.S., overseas. not from Canada. Yeah, yeah. So that 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 should paint the picture. It was nominated for five Grammys. It won three of them. It was up for Album of the Year, which is the big one. And I, I guess I wanted to talk about Stuart Copeland because I know again that's another one of your biggest influences. When uh-huh. I look at lists that have the ten greatest drummers of all time, Stuart Copeland's almost always on that list. And Rolling Stone themselves in 2016 put out a list of the best drummers of all time. And he was number 10. Uh What makes him so special? And the more I interview drummers on this podcast, the more that name comes up. He just didn't play like a typical drummer. You know, like at that time, it was like straightforward ACDC. Nothing wrong with that. There's awesome parts that ACDC has, but it was like Stuart Copeland just coming in and cleaning house. He was a drummer's drummer, like Neil Peart, but not as technicality as Neil Peart, but still wrote great drum hooks. Uh, Roxanne is an, another prime example where he flips the beat around. You don't do that in pop rock. You just don't. And he took those chances. And I'm sure he caught hell from it, like blah, 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 blah. And he'd be like, I'll show you. And now every drummer looks up to Stuart Copeland for taking that chance. Maybe the singer doesn't appreciate it. Maybe the guitar player doesn't appreciate it. But us in the same craft love every moment 
anything he played, we love. And I think the way he played the hi-hats, nobody was doing at that time. It was just keeping time. And he would break up those beats and let it breathe more. Like 30-second notes, grace notes, all these kind of things where it was like, what is that? I've never heard anything like that. What are these symbols he's hitting that it sounds small, but they cut? It was just no one can ever top that guy to me. He played on Red Rain, Peter Gabriel, just hi-hat. That tells you something. If you're hired just to play hi-hat for a song, awesome. That's wild. I uh, So I mentioned the accolades of just how big the album itself was. Now I want to uh -huh. share how crazy the numbers are for the first single, Every Breath You Take. So it's one of the single most played songs on radio in human history. It's it's It has over 15 million plays just on radio. Uh, I'll keep going with these crazy numbers. It was the single best-selling song of 1983, so the entire year. It's the fifth best-selling single of that entire decade of the 80s. Um, Rolling Stone has it at number 84 on the 500 greatest songs of all time. And this is the craziest point. Sting makes... $2,000 a day, a day on average, just from that one song. So if he never did anything for the rest of his life and he just sat there in a room, he would have $2,000 go in his bank account every single day just from this one song. And the police have a whole career of hit songs. Mind you, it crossed over too to a different genre. He gave it to P. Diddy. Which was a massive hit, right? I'll be missing you. Mm-hmm. Right when Biggie passed away. God rest in peace. So he used that. I'm sure Andy Summers and Stewart weren't happy with it, but those lyrics, that melody is iconic that you, you could cross it over to rap. Masterfully done, by the way, too. So on top of that, on his own merit of his own band, making tons of money off of it, then sending it out to a hip hop artist who makes more money on that too. Yeah. They're not, uh, the band's not hurting for money. That's for sure. Um, and mind you can play that song and you're like, Oh, it's such a pretty song, but lyrically it isn't. I have a story <laughs> about that. Really? Yeah. I have a story here. So um, I remember in an interview hearing sting say, that, you know, people think it's a love song and it's one of the most played songs at weddings. And it's actually a dark exactly. song about about stalking and, and possession and 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 those things. And uh, so Sting Sting says the lyrics and the words are about a possessive lover. So Sting said, I woke up in the middle of the night with the line, every breath you take, every move you make in my head. I sat down at the piano and I I. I wrote the song in half an hour. The tune itself, it's generic. It's an aggregate of hundreds of other songs, but the words are interesting. It sounds like a comforting love song. I didn't realize at the time just how sinister it is. I think I was thinking about Big Brother surveillance and control. So that's the darkness in uh, every breath you take. That's what I think is the best part about the song. You thought it was this, 
because the music and how the music can make an illusion where lyrically you're sliding something in in the back door and it's like, whoa, that's like darn. It's kind of like um, in the air tonight. I mean, there was many spe- uh, rumors, speculations of what that song really, how it was written about like one I heard uh, Phil Collins' son, or not son, one of his brothers or something like that was on ice and was drowning and no one would save him. And the guy just watched his brother or someone, relative friend, drown while no one tried to help him. And then he went to soundcheck and said they were playing something. And he's like, keep that going. I got some lyrics. But then broke off the record. Or no, I think he went on Jimmy Fallon or something like that and really said it's about, I think, his divorce. And it's like, here's another song that's dark, but still pretty at the same time. And you hear, do, 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 do. And that's him literally taking his frustration. You know, it's crazy how music can play a perception in your head, but it's really not intended that way. So I have a few more things about the song Every Breath You Take. And then I'd like to dive into some other songs like King of Pain mm. and Mother. Uh, oh, so yeah. for Every Breath You Take. So the video now, since YouTube came around, the video has a billion views on YouTube. Uh, the song itself was nominated for three Grammy Awards when it was released. Uh, we talked about Puff Daddy in 1997. Uh, that song went to number one for 11 weeks. And that song, the Puff Daddy version, won a Grammy. And Sting actually came out with, uh, with did Puff it. Daddy on the uh, MTV Music Awards. MTV. Yeah, I think it was P. Diddy, Faith Evans, and Sting. Yeah. On that track. It's so cool to see the different kind of generations and the different genres come together there. Again, Living Color. Laid the groundwork. And and so did Run in D- Run DMC With Aerosmith. and Aerosmith and Public Enemy and Anthrax. Bring bring the noise. Yeah, you don't see that anymore. We need to bring that back. You know, bring back different genres and mix them together. Linkin Park's a prime example. Hip hop with metal. It's great. It's a good fusion to try different things. So Stuart Copeland had something to say about the music itself for the song. So he acknowledges that the song itself is great. But when it comes to what they were playing as musicians, uh, he said this, which I thought was funny. He says, in my humble opinion, this is Sting's best song with the worst arrangement. I think Sting could have had any other group do this song and it would have been a better version than ours, um, except for Andy's brilliant guitar part. Basically, there's an utter lack of groove. It's a totally wasted opportunity for our band, even though we made gazillions off of it and it's the biggest hit we've ever had. When I listen to the recording, I think, God, what a bunch of assholes we were. So that's pretty funny. It's funny you bring that up because every time a musician or a band write something they hate what they did but the whole audience is like it's the most iconic part prime example a song i will not bow where it goes i will not bow i will not break ding ding and there's this ice bell i hit i didn't come up with that i don't take credit 
when I don't do something. I give credit where credit's due. And Ben, I wrote a bell part previous when we were writing the song together. And he took that, snipped it, and just went ding, ding. And I'm like, that is the most dumbest part I've ever heard for a drummer to go ding, ding. But then everyone comes up and goes, dude, I love that part. Ding, ding. I'm like, I don't even want to hear that. And then you're stuck playing it forever. And I'm stuck playing. And I almost make fun of it when I play it every time I go. Right. But Stuart feels the same way, probably going and just hitting snare where he's like, I could have done hi hats here, you know, but again, it is a masterpiece the way it was written. The people that wrote it maybe aren't attached to it. It was a bad experience recording it. But at the end of the day, we don't write songs just for us. We write to heal the world. Sometimes we're greedy and we write it for ourselves and we don't care what anyone thinks. But most of the time, the reason music is supposed to see the light of day is to help people through their problems. So the song King of Pain, for some reason, that song, uh, other artists love to cover it. So Alanis Morissette did an MTV Unplugged album and she covered that song. Mudvayne covered that song, which is a completely different genre. And then Weird Al, when a band is the biggest band in the world, Weird Al comes around and he he parodied King of Pain. And it was King of Suede was the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That so. song is weird because I think it's played on a marimba in the beginning part. But it comes, the snare comes in, there's a... And you're like, what? How did that... And, and you know how you're saying what's the most challenging songs in that? That's another one because it comes out of nowhere. It's just space 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 crack and then the snare comes in you're like whoa where did that come from those are the things that band was great at like taking you for a a loop and it's like but still music was the most important thing to make it musical and they did it and and Stuart to me was like he's you know drummers all you hit things for a living you're stupid Bro, the guy wrote orchestra parts for every part now. Like, mind-blowing. Neil Peart, I believe, has a had a doctorate in percussion. He's playing bells. He's playing marimba. He plays that cat electronic thing. He's playing electronic drums. He's playing drum set. He's not just a drummer. He is a musician. Stuart was a musician. He added marimbas and parts, you know, all these kind of things to make these songs come to life. If you took away that drumming, you do not have the police. Like Dave Matthews, you take away Carter Beaufort, who was definitely influenced by Stuart Copeland. You take away those drums, you don't have Dave Matthews, in my opinion. I want to get so those your- drummers are attributes. I want to get your your thoughts on the song Mother because it's it's it it kind of stands out on that album because it's so different. It's dark, it's, it's strange, it's yeah. it it's not Sting that's singing. Uh to me, it sounds like an outtake from Pink Floyd's album The Wall, like just this strange uh, I was about character. To say, um yeah. and, and it generated controversy when it came out 
people saying that's by far the worst song on an all-time great album. Um, what what are your thoughts on the song? And I, I feel like it just, you know, maybe it's not the best song on the album, but it it adds extra character to the album as a whole because it's it's painting a certain color in that palette. I'll be dead honest. I skip it all the time. <laughs> How dare you, sir? <laughs> I know I do because there's there's nothing that moves me in that. I mean, it's a storyline. I get it. But there's so many other songs I want to listen to. And I hear don't don't do And then that was like slaps and stuff like, oh, but was, oh, but, oh, you know, talking. And I'm like, oh, I'm not into it. But I need to dig back into it. Maybe that I matured more in my listening. Maybe I should go down that road and listen to it a little bit more in depth. So I have one fun, one funny thing I found, and then I have a little bit of critical acclaim for the album, and then we'll move on to your next choice. So uh, the police kind of had this this iconic bleach blonde hair. All the members, it was just this thing mm-hmm. with the police, and apparently this is this was completely by mistake that way back in the beginning, before they had made a bunch of money, they were filming a commercial for Wrigley's gum. And they got the part on yeah. the condition that they all bleached their hair blonde. So they did it for the money. And then the commercial just never aired. And, you know, maybe they and had gigs shortly after hair. that, or maybe they did a music video and they just, from that point became known for the blonde hair and they kept it. So it was completely by accident. I mean, they had that eighties look too, like spiked hair, short bleached, um, you know, crazy outfits in the eighties. Baggy pants, you know, like the MC Hammer kind of pants with checkerboard kind of print on it. Because at that time, that was hit, you know. So the bleach blonde hair was like Billy Idol. You know, that was the thing. Um, You know, Dan Todd, one of my great friends who played with Platinum Blonde, were they all blonde? Not naturally. Not naturally, right? So, you know. I guess if your band's platinum blonde, you do platinum blonde hair because then it's like, really, you're going to be that band, you know, but with the police, I think it worked with them doing all those kinds. It's like Rush. I watched a documentary and they're talking about all the elaborate outfits they wore through their years. They're like one cycle. We look like wizards. Then the next we're trying to figure out who we were in the eighties, you know? So I think it just error after error, you're trying to find out to blend in and also go against the grain and try to be a trendsetter. Then follow the, you know, I always have this hat. My best, one of my best friends gave me, it said, uh, be a lion, not a sheep. Yeah. There's a quote I love that was uh, lions don't lose sleep over the opinions of sheep, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a little acclaim for for the police as well as that album. So Rolling Stone has that album synchronicity at number 159 on the 500 greatest albums of all time list. And four out of the five police albums are on that greatest greatest albums of all time list. Four out of five, which is wild. And uh, I guess the last thing is they came back together for a reunion tour in 2008. And that year they were the highest earning musicians in the Mm -hmm. world. 
because that reunion tour was the highest grossing tour of 2007, 2008. So if they wanted to, they could get back together. And, and if $2,000 a day for, uh, for every breath you take isn't enough for sting, he can make hundreds of millions here. So. Yeah. When you're making $14,000 doing nothing, just sitting back, I think that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wouldn't mind seeing them live if they could get That's back together. That's one song. That's yeah. one song. We're not talking about publishing on every other solo stuff, which was massive. It's crazy. Yeah, I, I didn't know that Andy's actually 10 years older than the other guys. So if, if, yeah. if the other guys are getting up there, Andy's 10 years older. So Yeah, he can get him a Denny's discount. <laughs> there you go. So let's dive into the next album. So we got Huey Lewis and the News Greatest Hits. This is from 2006. Um, why why does this collection of songs mean so much to you? This album has 21 hits on it, and it went the album itself went platinum. So outside of the band that sold 30 million albums themselves, then this collection itself sold another million just in the U.S. I what I love about this band are their harmonies. And their choices of chord progressions um, and their barbershop kind of quartet vibe. My grandfather was really big into that, too. And he took me to go see a barbershop quartet concert. And I fell in love with how one person does a harmony and then another harmony. And, and then you have this harmonious, like, choir of four or five guys and Huey Lewis bringing the harmonica and this blue Chicago vibe really hit home for me for some reason. I just gravitated towards it. So uh, a couple of years ago uh, on the podcast, I had Darren Dumas, who's the singer of the band, the salads who are big in Canada. And on that, during that interview, he talked about his love for Huey Lewis and, and he loves that, the music so much he started a cover band called the power of huey so he was the singer that's awesome and that's, that's what awesome. that's what for some reason i missed the whole huey lewis in the news uh phenomenon really? and uh it was the interview that that said hey well if this guy loves him i should check him out so uh, i'm so late to the game with huey lewis so i'm glad i listened to this greatest hits album because now i know at least the 21 hits that are on this this album yes yeah, sports i mean was an iconic record um I always wanted to cover it, but do it like metal version, not like, da -da -dum, da -da -dum, but make it heavier was hard and soul. If you've never heard that song, listen to that and picture heavy guitars, but man, them and hollow notes changed my life in pop. The, uh, the song, I want a new drug. As I'm listening to it, I'm thinking, Man, this sounds like the Ghostbusters theme song. And then yeah. as I'm reading, when that Ghostbusters theme song came out, Huey Lewis and the News sued Ghost them yeah. because that's their song, but now it's Ghostbusters. And uh, they settled out of court, which means that the people that infringed on them are basically acknowledging like, oh, yeah, we messed up. And here's yeah, I can't to, remember to go to court. So it was Not Ray Parker you. Jr. Ray Parker yeah. Jr. and Columbia Pictures, uh, they they settled for copyright infringement. So my brain, I was not I crazy can't remember. when I heard this song. I can't remember if Huey Lewis was offered to write the song for Ghostbusters 
and he got lazy or turned it down. And then they had Ray Parker write it in the vein of when Huey Lewis was big. Mm. And it was like almost like a dig towards him. I'm not sure, but like, it cost them. What did? But Ray Parker is a bad mama jamma on guitar. If you've never heard him, not just think of Ghostbusters. Who are you going to call? But he is like Howard Benson kind of guitar playing. Like jazzy. Oh, he's ridiculous. And so and, it's pretty cool. And then again, there's Weird Al. When you're the biggest band in the world, Weird Al covered uh, I Want a New Drug. And the song was I Want a New Duck. So there you go. Weird Al keeps showing up. He, I just He's interviewed, great. I just interviewed Crash Test Dummies, and their song was covered by uh, Weird Al. So it's, man, he's he always knows what's what's going on, and he shows up. Uh, the Power of Love is the the band's biggest oh. song. Uh, anything you can say about the Power of Love? Back to the Future. That was the song where he gets on the skateboard and he sees the girl. Power of love. The it's just something they're hooks. You could sing after you heard the song, their entire chorus. That's how good their choruses were. Uplifting. Um, yeah, they were definitely uplifting and just set a mood right off the bat. What's uh, what's awesome is that song got nominated for an Academy Award for the uh for the back to the future soundtrack and it was nominated for a grammy so super acclaimed uh, and huey lewis is in the movie when they do battle the bands and he goes i'm afraid you're just too damn loud next please they're they're playing his song aren't they the band and he says you guys are too loud they're playing his song in reality and at that time i didn't know what huey looked like so here all of a sudden he's in a costume with glasses and everything, and that's him. Who does that in movies today? No bands are in, you know, move. Well, I take that back. I think that uh, Flea and Anthony Kiedis were in a movie, and I think obviously Zach Wilde was in Rockstar. But to have their song be that big, and you know, they don't do that anymore. The uh, the song, the heart of rock and roll. Uh, so this was inspired. The band was playing a gig in Cleveland and they're from San Francisco. So they kept hearing that crowds in Cleveland were amazing. So they went in with a chip on their shoulder thinking San Francisco is the best. They best, finished yeah. playing the show in Cleveland. And uh, I guess Huey turned to his band and said, uh, the heart of rock and roll is in Cleveland. Like that's how hard the, the crowd went. And then they took that, they wrote it down for a song and they switched the lyrics to uh, the, the heart of rock and roll is still beating instead of in Cleveland, just so it's not specific to an area. And then he says, um, the heart of rock and roll, the heart of rock and roll is a beat. In Cleveland. So the drums play it. Okay. And then he says it at the very end, yeah. And the kick does like a heartbeat. No pun intended. But um, I think, was that after Girls, Girls, Girls? After the Motley Crue Motley Crue. Because in that song, he talks about different locations. Motley Crue does strip bars. Hmm. Strip clubs and different names like Fort Lauderdale. 
seven veils, you know, so you get that perception. When you hear harder rock and roll, you feel like you're on a tour bus going to all different locations. So I wish I'm, I'm curious which one did it first of names. I mean, you have Detroit Rock City, but that's Detroit Rock City. Huey's talking about more than one location, too. But the heart of rock and roll is in Cleveland. So the the song stuck stuck with you went to number one. And what's funny is he wrote this song for a girl and then he played it for her and she didn't like it. So she, she inspired like it. it. It became a number one hit. And then the girl that he actually wrote it for was not a fan of it. Came to fruition, right? Um, the That song is like being on a desert island and the boat. Uh, I can't remember if the boat sinks or something, but they're on a raft or, or swimming to a shore. And he's stuck with this only person is this girl. And just the, the setting, I guess, like, because you got to think when Huey Lewis came out, you had like all those stupid Skinamax movies and meatballs and all these things that kind of played into Porky's and Ski Patrol and all these movies that kind of made that kind of vibe, that 80s beach vibe or the 80s you know stuff like that <laughs> the uh the the single doing it all for my baby that made history for the band because it became the fifth top 10 hit from one album so their album four so it made them the first group in history that had five top 10 10 hits from a single album so that's a record-breaking song doing it for my baby and here's a little uh thing about myself with that record four was actually the first record I purchased. My grandma bought me at a music shop and I wanted, what was it? Heart and soul. I heard on the radio and I wanted that song. And I thought it was on four, which just came out and I got the wrong record or the wrong cassette. I wanted sports, but I didn't know what sports was. So I got four and then fell in love with that and went back and found out I got the wrong song and then bought sports and then fell in love with their whole discography. Well, you got lucky because sports is considered that's like their their biggest album. Anyways, I don't know if it's considered their best, but it's a. Uh, yeah, four was great, though. I mean, it. it yeah, four had some great songs doing it for I mean, that video was like, a, if I remember correctly, it's like Frankenstein and the Princess, like Frank's Bride or something. I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but yeah. I think Big, the movie Big has one of their songs on there. With Doing Tom it. Hanks? Uh, uh, what's the song? Doing it off for a weekend or something. I can't, yeah. I can't remember. Where. Working for a living. Working for a living. Yeah. Yeah, it's um the movie big. And he uh in that song he named a bunch of different jobs that he actually held. Um so he put the mm -hmm. actual jobs he had when he was younger yeah. in that song for working working for a living. Yeah. Yeah, great band, man. So, it's it's kind of sad that Huey has problems with his hearing, so he can't hear pitch anymore. And if any singer that's watching this knows if you can't hear pitch. You don't have a job anymore. 
it's kind of like Phil Collins. And I, I, it's such a terrible thing of a disease he has that won't allow him to drum. People don't realize if that's your profession for all these decades and it's done, but you're still healthy in a way, you still can function, but you can't play the instrument you've grown to love for all these years and it's done. That's hard to swallow. Yeah, he uh, he released an album called Weather in 2020, and it looks like that's his final album because yeah. um, what is it? Meniere's disease. And he says he can't hear well enough to to be able to sing anymore. No, that's so heartbreaking. And I mean, I I'm a drummer and I have terrible hearing like my wife and my stepdaughter, and my son are called what and huh? And what? Who? What? Like, because. You can hear it. You just need another time ago. What? Just to clarify, did I hear it properly? And when you watch Huey do interviews, he's like, what? what? And, he go, and he squints. He's like, what did you say? And I know what that feels like. And it's a terrible feeling because you second guess what you think they said. You still hear it, but you second guess. So you want to be like reinsure yourself to go. I think that's what you said, right? That's why what is always in my vocabulary. When, uh, when Huey was young, he hitchhiked across, he hitchhiked across the U S and it was waiting. All that waiting around is where he learned how to play the harmonica. Cause he had nothing else to do. That's crazy. I didn't and, know that. And that, that actually came into play because before he was big, under the name Bluesy Huey Lewis, he played harmonica on Thin Lizzy's landmark album Live and Dangerous in 1978. This is before he was big. He played just harmonica on that album. And here I am playing for that band years right. and years and years later. That's uh, Black Star Riders, right? I didn't even know. Yeah, I didn't even know he played on. Is it Live and Dangerous, right? Live and Dangerous, yeah. Wow, that's crazy. I didn't know that. But yeah. they were a blues band, a blues pop band, really, is what Huey Lewis was. And uh, one of their, their biggest singles, Hip to be Square, uh, th this was used in a bunch of different mediums. So American Psycho, the book, wrote about the song within the story. And then mm -hmm. in the actual movie with Christian Bale, the song is played. And then Sesame Street uses the song. And mm -hmm. Huey Lewis, he loved that. And then it was covered by Ice Nine Kills, the heavy band. So people yeah, love because that they do like a ton and cheek off of American Psycho in a way too. Oh, it's serial killers that they they cover. Mm -hmm. I actually I forgot. I, I I mentioned I just saw Metallica in Montreal with Pantera and Five and Finger Death Punch and Ice Nine Kills. So I just saw them live and it just hit me. They do all the murder serial killer stuff. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, anyway. yeah, that's their their gimmick. So you actually saw Huey Lewis in the news live? I saw some of the guys, not all the original members, but some of them, like the drummer. Um, I don't even know his name. But he also played some simple but hard parts. But um, I saw them around our area. My buddy worked at the casino and they played outside. I took my wife and I to go see him. And we had a blast. He sounded great. Sounded amazing. So I got to see him, but I didn't see him in their heyday. I was too young, but I did see him later on. 
So let's dive into your fourth album on your list of uh, favorite albums. So Tony Williams, Tokyo Live. This is in 1993. Um, Man, this is, it's two hours and 20 minutes worth of music and it's live. And I felt like I'm just witnessing genius for two and a half hours. Can you describe to our listeners who don't know Tony Williams and have not heard this album, can you... I guess, share a little bit of what they could expect if they were to go check it out right now. Tony Williams. And we're talking the cream of the crop drummers. Vinny Caliuta, Simon Phillips, Greg Bizonette, um, Dave Weckl. Any of those kind of drummers that saw Tony Williams, watch him play, they would cry. That's how good he was. Now, he wasn't a guy that does all these gospel fills that are today. He wrote drum parts and drum licks that we still steal from today. Uh, He's no longer with us. God rest in peace, Tony. But um, he would play just cymbals. And somehow, some way, you would hear tonality that no one could bring out of a cymbal. Just writing symbols, you're like, how is this even, how is this possible? Then he would drive a band, meaning on a ride symbol, playing um, the jazz spangalang thing, da, 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 and then go, da, 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 didn't play the traditional jazz pattern ride. He took a chance and change that all up called breaking the ride symbol up and the ferocious movements on his drums he didn't play the typical drum sizes which is an 18 inch kick drum a 12 inch rack tom a 14 inch floor coated heads mind you he played control dots which are clear heads with a black dot in the middle which were more for rock, a 24-inch kick drum, two racks, three floors, and a plethora of cymbals. This was unheard of for bebop and played super hard, but also delicate to the touch when he had to. He did things that drummers were not doing in in bebop. And his arrangements, his melody, he even covered... Ladybird, uh, Beatles, Blackbird. I mean, so Ladybird, Blackbird, um, and did a like a jazz composition to it, and it's phenomenal. Now, my favorite record, even though it's that's the live one I picked, is called Neptune, and a song called Juicy Fruit. Hands down, is one of my favorite Tony Williams composition, but. I like the live setting because there's chances being taken and you feel that you feel like you're there somehow, some way they made it feel like you were at the concert. What's funny is I'm, I I start listening to the album. And so the first song geo Rose is 11 and a half minutes long. And I'm three minutes in and there's only been drums. And I'm thinking, this might be two and a half hours of just drumming. Like it might be just him alone. And I was ready to take that in. And then after three minutes, the band kicks in, 
But uh, there's several parts like that. Uh, later on, there's other songs where it's just drums for a long, long stretches mm-hmm. of time. I mean, that's got to be hard as the drummer on his own to just keep keep everything going just by himself. You know, it's like you don't hear that too often unless someone's technically doing a drum solo. You're like, oh, here's the drum solo. But for him to be playing yeah. a song without any accompaniment, it it seemed uh, like it was it was something different. And it can get boring. But for some reason, somehow, somehow, some way, he kept you captivated through the entire 15-minute drum solo, three-minute drum solo, because he wasn't just playing flashy stuff all the time. He was technically playing melodies on those drums where he would start like a tribal thing. He, it, the rudiments, the Swiss Army triplet, but he would go, stuff like that and it would just it was like a roller coaster of emotions it was he's definitely hands down my favorite drummer of all time yeah and these songs i mean almost all the songs are over 10 minutes each and a lot of the songs are 15 to 18 minutes and it's live yeah yeah, it's crazy. So he uh, just to to go back to the beginning. So he began. He started playing drums professionally at just thirteen years old. And then you mentioned at seventeen he was drumming for Miles Davis. I mean, mm-hmm. you're you're playing for one of the greatest artists of all time at seventeen. Of all time, at of all time, yeah, yeah. And he also played with Chet Baker, Herbie Hancock, and Carlos Santana. So it's not just that if all he did was play with Miles Davis, that would be incredible, but he went on to play with lots of the greats. Yep. A lot. Alan Holsworth. Yeah. Tons of greats. So one more thing here in 1970 music critic, Robert Chris described him as probably the best drummer in the world. So quite the, quite the quote there. In the world. Now, you can go into a nine-hour debate, who's the best drummer in the world? I don't believe there's anybody, except Tony Lawrence. But (laughs) Buddy Rich is known to be the greatest drummer of all time. He had the chops, and he is one of my favorites. But Tony, stylistically a word? I don't know. Um, could play anything. He was even dabbling, I think, in double bass right before he passed. And I believe the crazy way he passed, I got my gallbladder out too. He got his gallbladder out. And then his wife was in the, the room as he's recovering and complained about his chest. And they thought it was gas from probably extending his stomach to get into his gallbladder. And then he died with, from a heart attack. He's 50. Right there so after young. surgery. I think that's what I've been told. I that's what, that's what I read. That's the story okay. I read. And he was only 51. It's so sad. Yeah. So many more years to lay groundwork for all of us. But I don't care any drummer. They at least know Tony Williams. So your your final album here, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Greatest Hits. This comes out in 1998. So out of the 17 songs on this Greatest Hits album, 
I was only familiar with three of them. So I knew September, which is probably their biggest song. Let's groove and boogie wonderland. Should I, should I have known more than three of the seven? After the hits? love is gone. There has been our population has been made by that song. That's a valid point. Babies after babies. And the reason those are like, you want a ballad to last like purple rain. That's the ballads of all time. After the love is gone is, <laughs> I mean, you play, you see that band play it. Everyone's like in their zone, just dancing. <laughs> it just sets that mood. I, I knew that they were pioneers. Again, it's before my time. I knew they were pioneers, but I didn't realize that they're one of the best-selling groups of all time. They they sold 90 million albums. I had no idea that they were that popular. I knew they were groundbreaking. I knew they were popular, but I didn't know that they were that popular. Mass, massive. And it's crazy, all the people I picked on this list all set something. All set something massively, whether it's sonically, record sales, or respected in the industry. That's why I chose those records. Obviously, you know, we can talk about the other ones that I would pick, but those, if I was on a desert island, I think I covered a lot of ground of genres that I would never get sick of. Yeah, they uh, they won six Grammy Awards. Rolling Stone called them innovative, precise, yet sensual. That's what you're talking about. Calculated, yet galvanizing, and declared that the band changed the sound of black pop. And NVH1 described the band as one of the, the great bands of all time. Uh, so they've released 21 albums and 62 singles. So they have so much music that they can choose these 17 songs from for this Greatest Hits album. And what's mind-blowing is they have 17 Greatest Hits albums. So they've they've had they have so 62 singles and they they've been big for so long like it's been such a long period mm -hmm. of time. They have 17 separate Greatest Hits albums. So whether it's, you know, Greatest Hits compilations whatever mm -hmm. so you have so that's why i had to ask to make sure i'm looking at the right greatest hits album because there's 17 different ones i know it's and i mean i'm a i love earth wind and fire i'm good friends with the drummer uh john paris who's amazing musician and and person but um he's been with them for a long time and I got to see them with another favorite band of mine called Chicago. And they were doing like a fair and I got invited to go and see them. And I saw the coolest thing. Chicago's horn section played with Earth, Wind and Fire. Earth, Wind and Fire's horn section played with Chicago. And it was just weird to see how different it would sound. Because they're both great, amazing bands. And I always get in a debate who was bigger. Well, I think Chicago was bigger than Earth, Wind and Fire um, just because the more dummy down thing. But the musicianship was definitely Earth, Wind and Fire. Yeah, it's 
they they've gone through 36 band members over the years you know normally it shows a band and there's four current members and there's like one past member or two there's there's i don't know say four band members and then there's 32 other bands they could start a football team yeah they could start their own community or a hockey team yeah absolutely so I, i just have three more points and then we'll wrap up. So September, uh-huh. I was saying to me, that's, you know, I, that's the most signature song that they have. When you hear September, it's like, okay, that's undeniably a hit. Um, so that, that went six times platinum in the U S so commercially it's their biggest hit. And then Rolling Stone has it at number 65 on their list of 500 greatest songs of all time. So you're getting right near the pinnacle of greatest songs of all time there. And then uh, earth, wind and fire, you see the list on Wikipedia when a band influences other bands. Normally it shows like three bands that they influence. There was like this whole page and I picked a few big names. So Earth, Wind & Fire influenced Alicia Keys, Usher, Prince, Pharrell Williams, Outkast, Justin Timberlake, and Amy Winehouse. That's just a few of yeah, the you know, just artists. A little bit, just a little bit of people, you know. Yeah. And then we've been talking about Miles Davis and, uh, there was a section where it shows their contemporaries that say nice things about them. And Miles Davis describes the band as his all-time favorite band, saying they have everything, horns, electric guitars, singers, and more in one band. Then Quincy Jones proclaimed himself to be the biggest fan of Earth, Wind, and Fire since day one. Dionne Warwick named Earth, Wind, and Fire her favorite group of all time. So the greats are saying that's their favorite. Serpentine Fire has a lot of, like, technicality in that one too. check that one out and so those are you chose those five as your five favorite albums just because we have to choose five uh you you probably have you probably have 10 or 20 albums that you listen to regularly um do you have any honorable mentions now that you could rapid fire through just other albums that you love that you think our listeners should check out i know that that van halen greatest hits was one of them to get you started yeah yeah, because it the greatest hits had David Lee Roth and Sammy Hagar. I'd be like, oh, you like Sammy Hagar? You like David Lee Roth? I love them both. I think they wrote all great songs. Uh, when Sammy Hagar was with them, he wrote a massive ballad. You know, a couple massive ballads. Um, with Van Halen, David Lee Roth brought an attitude, a party feel. Like you want to be in that band. Um, but the greatest hits ha- to me lays a lot of the groundwork. Yeah, there's a lot of B-sides, Romeo's Delight and stuff like that. But like, you got to pick the hits. That's the best of both worlds you're saying. You get both singles yeah. on that. Same thing with Rush. Like, I'll probably get in trouble for this, but Roll the Bones was my favorite record. Because then around that time, everything was just pristine, clean. They already knew who they were, and they were big at that time. Um, But Chronicles, which is their greatest hits, was one of my favorites to listen to. Um, That covered a lot of groundwork. That was before Counterparts was involved and all that. But um, another record, Tower of Power, back to Oakland. That was another iconic band for me with David Garibaldi drumming. Wait, Tower of Power is involved with one of the five artists you have on this list. Is it Huey Lewis in the news? Tower Tower of Power. Tower of Power is like their own band. 
Right. But Tower of Power collaborated with one of the artists on your list. I read it all up on Tower of Power. Oh, they did? Yeah, I think I think I think it's Huey Lewis in the news that brought in Tower of Power uh, for some stuff. So if you keep maybe they grab their horn section, maybe they grab the horn section. Yeah. So if you keep naming a few more uh, albums that you love, I'll find out real quick. I I think it's Huey Lewis. I didn't know that that has like a long standing collaboration. But But Tower of Power was uh, a, a life changing moment. And then a record that really brought me to Greg Bizonette, one of my other favorite uh, people, um, was called The Extremist, Joe Santriani. And he and his brother, Matt Bizonette, played on it. And that changed my drumming. Um, so yeah, it's Hue- Huey Lewis that uh, had a long-standing collaboration. So he must have just used them in the studio, but you don't see credits, right? You don't know that they're on a song. Yeah, I never looked at the credits, to be honest with you. I didn't know that. But that makes sense now with the horn hits and stuff. Um, but yeah, there's so many great bands. But again, thinking of what hit home for me the most those five were the big choices I had to say. I had to be honest with, yes, Van Halen, I'm sure everyone would like, well, you don't like and take Van Yeah, I would, but there would be a time I, would, I wouldn't I would get involved in more than I would with the police. Police, you just cover so much ground. Um, I'm trying to think of another one. I mean, I loved 311, like grassroots and music were favorites of mine. Um, I liked Big Wreck, like the Big O. Yeah. Um. Yeah, there's just so many, and it 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 was definitely challenging. Like this is all you can take for the rest of your life. That was hard. Yeah. Well, as as we wrap up here, is there anything you'd like to say? to your fans that have been with you from the start through all the different bands, your solo stuff, the, the new band turning the tide, uh, any, any words for, for the fans that, that have been loyal to you from the start. All I can say is thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on this crazy roller coaster of my journey of, you know, from my band switch to breaking Ben to black label to Black Star Riders, to filling in with Stain, and doing those kind of things, you know, mean the world to me that they've stuck by me, and they're like, well, he's not in Breaking Ben, so I'm not going to stick with him. These people have stuck with me and followed me, and to this day are like, I hope you have something, you're a killer drummer, and it means the world to me that people still appreciate what I brought to a band and what I'm continually trying to do, and there's a kind of a secret that I'm doing right now with some people that um, I'll, I'll let, I'll let it out when it comes out, but I'm also doing another thing that could rattle some cages. Let's just say that. Um, But I'm actually right now working on it and um, it's amazing. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll announce that when, when the time is right. Um, I, I want to thank you uh, for sitting down with me again for the last oh, two hours or you. so. Uh, thank you for sharing those five albums because I surprisingly was not familiar with any of those five. So as a music lover, sometimes it's hard to discover new music. You feel like you've kind of heard everything. So 
for you to share these five all-time great albums that somehow they you know they they pass right through my life without me uh you know sinking my teeth into them it's been a lot of fun over the last week really sitting down and listening and taking it in and seeing what made these artists and albums so influential so thank you so much i've added them to my list of great albums so i can go back anytime and hopefully our listeners are going now to check out those five albums i hope i hope they do i hope they i mean Tony Williams is a little harder of a listen to because it's like, oh, it's elevator jazz music or F it, it's jazz. But it's some of the heaviest music you'll ever hear, even though it's not, you know, screaming. It's a different attitude. It's a different heaviness. And jazz, uh, people don't realize, like, people at that time weren't even allowed in clubs because they're color of their skin. So they were struggling just to get in to play instruments. And they were all messed up on heroin. Ones that call elevator jazz music, light, soft rock, whatever you want to call it. They were the most drugged out, alcoholic people than Guns N' Roses. Playing the heaviest, like, I'm playing my last day to live music. Because I'm probably going to get beat up for playing this bar that kind of culture, you know, really hits home. But yeah, man, thank you so much. I've had a blast doing this. Um, I really appreciate everything that you do. You do your homework on, on the artist. You really dive into it. You accept it for what it is and give it at least a shot, a chance. And, and, and talking to me on your busy schedule. And, you know, that means the world to me. And I really appreciate everything you do for us. You're very welcome. Thank you for the kind words. And uh, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. So the Chad fans, the Breaking Benjamin fans, the Black Label Society fans, Black Star Writer fans, the Turning the Tide fans, just every, (laughs) every band you've played in, all the fans, thanks for tuning in. And we'll see you on the next episode. Take care, guys. If you've enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, like, comment, and share. What I want to know is who would you like me to sit down with next for a two-hour deep dive interview? You can let me know by reaching out to me on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at Joel Martin Mastery. Joel is J-O-E-L. And you can find me on Twitter and Snapchat at Joel Mastery. So I am done. I am complete. I approve this message. And I'll see you on the next episode.